welcome to the Film Geezers Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Film Geezers Podcast. I'm Robbo. I'm here as always with Cheeto. Hello. And today's episode is going to be about failed films or films in development hell. So these are films that either never got made or spent time in what they call development hell. So um, they would have gone through lots of script rewrites, gone from director to director, producer to producer, even film company to film company, before finally getting made. So um, I'll kick off, shall I? Yep. So first one I'm going to talk about is a an undeveloped project by Orson Welles. So just to give a bit of background, Orson Welles, he started... Um, in the theatre in New York, he had his own theatre company, the Mercury Theatre Company. Um, they actually transferred to radio uh, on the CBS network, uh, and it was called the Th- Mercury Theatre Company on Air. And in 1938, he developed um, a version of War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells to, to be a radio play, and it was, it was broadcast live on Halloween of 1938. Um, and the way that it was written, it was almost written as like a live news broadcast. Yeah, pe- uh, loads of people thought it was real, didn't they? Yeah, there's, yeah. well, there's some, yeah, there's some conjecture about how you know how many, how how much disruption it caused. But there's, yeah, the start of the program there was a disclaimer saying, yeah, this is a radio play, but a lot of people missed that and they actually oh, thought right. that it was real and that mm. Martians were invading. Even to point, some people actually packed up their homes into their cars and left the city. Um. But it just happens a week later, uh, the Mercury Theatre Company on air uh, presented an adaptation of Joseph Conrad's uh, novella, Heart of Darkness. So in the summer of um, 39, Arkell came to a then 24-year-old Wells and gave him an opportunity to go to Hollywood and make films. And despite never having made a film before, Arkell made the unprecedented... Uh, gesture of giving him full control, mm. even, including Final Cut, which he's never done no. for, for a, a, somebody who's never made a film. Um, Arkell wanted him to um, film War of the Worlds, but he wanted to do ch- choose Heart of Darkness. Um, Heart of Darkness is um, it's a novella, and it's set in the Belgian Congo in the late 19th century. And the themes are about imperialism, colonialism, exploitation of natives, race, racism, and moral ambiguity. Um, but being sort of left-leaning, um, Wells adapted the story to focus on the rise of a fascist, fascist dictator to kind of mirror what was going on in uh, Germany at the time. Mm. So he decided he wanted to play both characters of Marlowe and Kurtz. But the film would be filmed in long shots from Marlowe's point of view, and you'd never see Marlowe's face, and it would only sort of appear briefly in reflections in water or glass. And I think he'd already blocked out about 150 long shots. So Arkell's location scouts, the set designers, special effects people, went to work with the hope of shooting the film entirely on sound stages because obviously going on location, it's more expensive. And Arkell had a... They had a, a policy that they wouldn't make a film if it cost more than half a million dollars. Um, so despite all of the work on Heart of Darkness, it was never made because the the complicated sh- shooting that he, or the complicated film work that he, that he wanted it would require 
sort of complex sets, um, miniatures, matte paintings, and it pushed the film's budget to, to over a million dollars. And obviously because of the war, RKO lost a lot of its distribution in Europe and they were sort of reluctant to produce a film that had overtly political message as well. So based on that and the budget, RKO's then president, George Schaefer, decided to pull the project. So obviously Kane, uh, Wells had to go and look for something else to do and that's when he did Citizen Kane. Mm. So, you know, Heart of Darkness might have been a great film, might have been the greatest film he'd ever made. It spurred them on to make yeah, um, one of the greatest films ever. Exactly. Made. So, you know, maybe he wouldn't have done, maybe he wouldn't have made Citizen Kane. It's probably mm. likely he wouldn't have done. Because he, he actually he he wrote it, he directed it, and he starred in it, and he won all three Oscars. For well, Citizen yeah, Kane, he, didn't he? He co-wrote it uh, with Herman Mankiewicz, um, who uh, wasn't he wasn't supposed to get credit for it, part of the contract. But he demanded that he got credit, and there was a cut. Is that why Wells was the one who got the? Oscar well, they Wells. both got Oscar for writing. Oh, okay, um, but they fell out and never spoke again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, because yeah, the court case ruled in in uh, Mankiewicz's favour. Yeah, um, but there's some like nobody really knows what involvement he had. Whether it was just um, he actually wrote the whole thing, or co-wrote it, or just wrote a bit of it. But yeah, it's they, mental. These things work like it. yeah. Like you said, if that film went on, then we may have not got... Well, probably Kane. not. He probably wouldn't have been scrabbling around looking for... Because no. I think Mankiewicz wrote Citizen Kane in about six weeks. Okay, yeah. Because he was obviously... Couldn't make this, so he had to he had to quickly find something else to do. Mm. So, um, so yeah, so that is... Uh, that's my first one. Yeah, um, very interesting. And this is the thing with this episode. We, we both found it interesting because there's things that we didn't even know in movies that we didn't even... Realize, yeah, you know, it's so. surprising how many films. I guess what what movie companies do is they buy up lots of scripts with the hope of developing them. Yeah, well, well, they 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 buy already used scripts. Yeah, um, but it also like um, Universal bought Michael Crichton's screenplay for, uh, screenplay for Jurassic Park, wasn't it, or something? Yeah, it was that before it was even, it was published. even yeah, yeah, so stuff like that. So yeah. they kind of um, they kind of. It shows that intent and they kind of put a risk on it, don't yeah. they, you know? so. But then a lot of films just don't get made or they run into problems. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they can yeah, sit on scripts. Like, um, film companies can sit on scripts for years until they find the right director or something yeah. that they want to go with. So, but like, um, my first film is, is that it has a couple of names, but it's most likely was going to be called Batman uh, Continues, but people refer to Batman uh, Tim Burton's Batman 3 because there's never an official name for this film so um, it's, this is a really odd one because after the huge success of both Batman and his sequel um, Batman Begins Tim Burton was reading a third film most likely called Batman Continues or something along those lines it would follow the events after Batman Returns and it would have had Michael Keaton return as the Dark Knight uh, Robin Williams was approached to play the Riddler which just is, I found it really weird. And Billy D. Williams was on board as Two Face. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer would have returned as Catwoman and Marlon Wayans, yes, Shorty Meeks from Scary Movie. Do you remember him? <laughs> yeah, Shorty yep. Yeah. Would have played Robin. Right, okay. And that was all down to Tim Burton's, these are all Tim Burton's choices, by the way, because they, um, they let him cast his own film, you know? Um, Cause, because that wasn't made, was that? Then the Batman and Robin film with Val Kilmer. 
in it. Or was that the Clooney one? I can't remember now. Yeah, yeah. It it, it um went on to that one. So yeah. which uh, was it? Kilmer or Clooney? Kilmer. Kilmer. Right. Batman and Robin was um was the Clooney one, but this film, well, uh, parts of the script went to the Kilmer and the Clooney oh, one. Right. So, okay. Um, right. I think that would have been one of the most weird things about the film being. Um, having Marlon Wayans as Robin, I just wouldn't never in a million years think that. Um, so already it seemed that they had the ball running, rolling, you know, uh, Tim Burton outlined who he wanted to star in this film and it seemed that this, this sequel was imminent, you know. One of the many reasons that this film was never made was because the two previous films had, had been deemed too, tar- too dark and like this is according to the studio and this is some, something I simply just can't get my head around. You know, if you look at DC superheroes, since they debuted as comic characters... You know, Superman has always been the shine of light, almost a beacon of hope, and Batman has been the dark, gritty, and mysterious character. And I just think you can't. Like what I'm trying to say is that Batman is a film is supposed to be dark, and for some reason the studio and some viewers didn't like it. Like yeah, well, the, the, the '60s TV show was definitely not dark. It was no. kind of campy, and that's I think that's what um, the Batman and Robin. Got a bit yeah, like that. Yeah, 100%. The, with, this, with the Adam West 60s, you couldn't be further from the actual proper um, character of Batman, you know? Yeah. But yeah, he's meant to be dark, this dark character. Yeah. But uh, I just, I really don't get it. And uh, Tim Burton, actually, it's odd because Tim Burton actually hates sequels. That's him quite saying he yeah. hates sequels. And mine was, the, mine was the same reaction as everyone else's. He made Batman Returns, and he planned on making this one. Why, if he hates sequels, it just doesn't add up. But I think the reason was because he obviously he did a sequel, planned on making this one because it was almost like his baby, it was his yeah. project. He thought he could really make a successful third film, and Warner Brothers didn't. They asked him to rewrite his script to something more simpler. Burton didn't like this, and this was one of the main reasons that he didn't pursue the project. Once Keaton had heard of Tim Burton's departure. He, followed, he soon followed suit. Warner Bros. had hoped that by offering loads of money and that Joel Schumacher now was, had taken Burton's place because they, they went around, they, they kind of panicked when Burton left because they were like, okay, who, who's a, an esteemed director we can go to? And they quickly just chose Joe Schumacher. They thought by picking him that it would be enough for Keaton to stay on, but it wasn't enough. A lot of the reasons why Tim Burton's Batman never became a rally was... Because, like I said, everyone thought the previous two were too dark, which begs the question, everyone loves the Dark Knight trilogy and they are some of the darkest films ever. So why didn't that many people like the original two, you know? Like Nolan's films are so yeah. dark and mm-hmm. they're, the, they're probably the realest portrayal of Batman. Yeah. Um, why didn't that many people like the original two? Maybe because it was a different audience back then, you know? It's, it's, yeah, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, or maybe because people were so sick of the campiness that the next two films gave us that the dark and gritty style was welcomed. The other film, the other reason that this film never transpired was because of money. As always, it's always about money, isn't it? Not from the films itself. They were both among the highest grossing films of all time at the time. It's because of merchandise. Burton's Batman just didn't sell enough merchandise for the, for the studio to feel confident to pump yeah. a load of money into the third film. And like it was going to be this third Tim Burton blockbuster and it just... They just couldn't find the a real reason to, to pump yeah. so much money into this. Um, this this was really the final nail in the coffin for his third. It was mostly about money. This film never got to the stage of principal photography. Nothing was ever filmed. 
Batman continues evolving into Batman Forever, which of course is universally panned by both critics and the general population. They were cast Val Kilmer as Batman, and of course Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones as the Riddle and Two-Face respectively. I would have wished Warner Brothers would have just trusted Burton with what he wanted to do. He obviously had a vision about how he wanted to round off his trilogy, and it's always going to be one of those what-if scenarios, you know? Because um, I, think, I think he always planned on having a trilogy, and always they say, don't they, you, you, the third one tends to be the most um, ambitious, the most... With the, biggest budget you know with the maybe trying to put your best work into the third one to round it off but literally the all these reasons there was just it was over money basically they just yeah. couldn't see they, they couldn't see kids buying batman figures which yeah. of course is is crap now because loads of people have them <laughs> don't they so well, it's not just kids is it now it's, yeah no uh, hey, i was looking at a batman statue <laughs> yeah so that's literally the main reason why so it's interesting yeah mm. All right, so uh, my next film is it's been hailed by critics as the best film never made, and it's Stanley Kubrick's biopic of Napoleon. Yeah. Um, there's actually a Stanley Kubrick exhibition at London's Design Museum, and it examines the making of every one of his films. Uh, but the opening section is actually devoted to this film, even though it was never made. Mm. Um, it's while he was complete in 2001 A Space Odyssey that he decided to make this film. And Kubrick is known for his almost obsessive attention to detail in his research. And he sent researchers all over Europe to collect everything they could about Napoleon. And he amassed a database of research, including thousands of documents, over 30,000 illustrations and location scouting photos. And he had a collection of books, um, of 276 books about Napoleon. Wow. And then he used that, so in 69 he wrote a 148-page screenplay of, of his life. But rather than taking just a section of his life and making about that, he didn't. He said, I'm going to do it for the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. From his birth in Corsica in 1769 to his death on the island of St. Helena in 1821. <clears throat> and he said the emphasis would be on the battles, which Kubrick called vast lethal ballets, which he would painstakingly recreate with a focus on authenticity and attention to detail does, does by ballet does he mean like it would be um like artsy almost like it would be um a beautiful battle like no just saying like um the way is that the being methodical battles are fought it's almost like a dance and it's almost like a ballet yeah when you're fighting battles okay, yeah. um but he, he felt relaxed you know about it he discussed in interviews he said he thought it would take considerably less time uh, than a space odyssey to make. Mm. He reckoned he could do the exterior shooting, that's battles, location shots, uh, within two or three months. And then he reckoned that after that, the studio work wouldn't take more than another three months. And he was planning to borrow uh, a maximum of 40,000 infantry and 10,000 cavalry from the Romanian army. And he said, <laughs> he's quite a saying, that recreating Napoleonic campaigns was not really as difficult as it first appears. Um, he wasn't worried about budget because he was going to use um, the, the Romanian extras uniforms would be made of a special kind of paper. Mm. So it's far cheaper than cloth, but yeah. you, you can't tell the difference on camera. Um, he wasn't going to sort of build any elaborate sets because they were planning to shoot in real locations in France where a lot of these old... Um, these old um, 
mansions and things haven't really changed since that era. They've still got like that kind of feel and the furniture and everything. So he's just going to sort of film it with a small documentary-sized crew. Um, Kubrick only had a, a pre-production agreement with MGM, so the agreement was he'd make a plan, a schedule, and a budget, which he delivered, but they didn't decided not to proceed. Um, and it's down to the fact of the timing, um, they think, it's because MGM had just been taken over, mm. And the new owners were more interested in building casinos um, than funding historical dramas with 50,000 military extras. And in 1970, Dino De Laurentiis' um, own Napoleonic epic, Waterloo, which starred Rod Steiger absolutely bombed at the box office, yeah. didn't make back any of its money, or didn't make back what it cost. So you can understand that MGM were a little bit hesitant about putting out another Napoleon film. Um, and there's actually a book on it. There's actually a book, a book written about it called Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon, The Greatest Movie Never Made uh, by Alison Castle. So that'd be an interesting read. Mm. Um, but he made a film, uh, 1975, Barry Lyndon, which um, is actually set around the same time. So he got to make almost like a Napoleonic-style film, mm. but just not the one he wanted to make. And again, just down to... Budget, yeah, and that's a, like I said, it's a yeah. running theme, isn't it? Really, yeah. you know, you just like I said, the film studio just changed hands, and they just weren't willing to to risk. Sometimes it just never transpires that it? it just yeah. there's, 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 there's lots of things that happen, yeah. and it's not sometimes it's not just one thing, but no. it's a series of things that happen, and they just weren't willing to make take a risk yeah. on him. But I think you know it would have been a good film, maybe. Um, yeah, I mean anything Kubrick does, yeah. you know, is, is legendary. Yeah, so pretty much, yeah. But yeah, interesting as well. Um, right, uh, my next film is I Am Legend, and I didn't realise that this film had a huge timeline. Really, yeah. I Am um, Legend has actually had a really rocky time on the big screen, and I really didn't realise it was first adapted into The Last Man on Earth, starring Vincent Price yeah. and uh, Richard Matheson, who is the author. Of the book, I believe he done Jewel as well, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm Legend wrote the screenplay himself, but he chose to be credited with a pseudonym due to him being dissatisfied with the result of the film. <laughs> right. So it doesn't sound promising, does it? That happens quite a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. Where, where the you know well-known writers discovered. <laughs> oh, they just don't want to take credit for it. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Last Man on Earth is the closest to the original story, but suffers from there being a low budget and price being miscast in the title. He does his best and is actually effective in a couple of scenes, but he's not exactly what you call an everyman that you'd expect from Robert Neville, you know? Yeah. This version also allegedly, allegedly inspired Night of the Living Dead, mainly the scenes of the mutants attacking Price's the house. Zombies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The book was again adapted in 1971 by Warner Brothers, and it was this version was the campy Charlton Heston take, the Amiga Man. This new version radically altered the plot, turning Robert Neville into almost caricature of Clint Eastwood as the man with no name. It's a terrible adaption of the book, turning the mutants into cloaked albinos who hate light and want to destroy the relics of the old world. So, I actually quite like that film. Yeah. Uh, like it that. is. For, for, you know, uh, to say he's supposed to, be a, he's supposed to be a scientist, isn't he? Yeah. You've got macho... <laughs> yeah, look, Charles. no end <laughs> Yeah. Hey, no, it's a good, it's a good film. Well, yeah, but when you when you... 
when you think that it was based on on I'm Legend, yeah. you're like, okay, definitely it. Um, they all knew yeah. it a bit, didn't they? I mean, that said, it's a hard film to hate thanks to Heston's charismatic turn. You know what you're going to get with him and the eerie scenes of a deserted LA. It's, you know, it's a really good film. Like I said, you know what you're going to get. But I think it's it's of oh, its time, isn't it? Yeah, I 100%. Think you, you look at the other films being made at that time and they're all that kind of similar, that post-apocalyptic um, films. And they all have that kind of campy feel as well. Yeah, I just don't know why. It. I just don't know what it is with Charlton Heston. Just he is a guy you cannot help but root for. Yeah, like he, he just has the like the charisma. He has, you know, he's the leading man. But he's, he's not particularly likable. No, he? that's the no, thing. It's hard, you isn't still it? want to root for him. <laughs> maybe because you're jealous of him. That's my man. In the mid '90s, Warner Brothers decided to have another crack at I Am Legend. They reached out to Mark Potter. This is hard to say his name. Mark Potter who also wrote The Cell, to come up with the screenplay. His screenplay had little to do with the actual book. He had lots of tropes and cheesiness you'd expect from a mid-90s blockbuster. A few, a few positives that he did add to the screenplay, however, was the fact that he turned the mutants into these creatures with terrifying speed and agility, almost like in the actual 2007 film. He was also able to capture Robert Neville's incredible loneliness. Again, some of the 2007 film does well. The studio hired Ridley Scott to direct the film, and they chose Arnold Schwarzenegger to play the lead role with Neville. <laughs> Ridley Scott wasn't actually that big of a fan of Protosevich's work, but he chose this script over another script by John Logan. Scott saw the potential to turn the script into emerging with a blockbuster and throw in his Blade Runner-esque style. Like, he wanted to have this artsy yeah. style, you know, and his ambitious plans are what ultimately doomed the project. He wanted to trim the script, and by doing this, the first act of the film would be near on silent. The plot would almost be the same as the 2000 movie, just with a different style. Ridley Scott actually almost wanted to change Arnie's on-screen persona. He wanted to give depth for the emotions, such as depression and paranoia. We don't usually get to see this in an Arnie no, film. You know, he's this unbeatable, you know, incredible monster almost. You know, and it's just it'd be a different take on Arnie. Yeah. I reckon he could, he, he could he, you know, I think his 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 actual acting ability. You can see sometimes like glimpses of it that like he can actually do yeah. that type of thing so it'd be interesting to go see him go into like a deeper role but even though this film had a lot going for it a number of factors got in the way Warner Brothers was coming off of a number of box office bombs including The Postman and Batman and Robin and that's the Clooney one they wanted a film that was going to be easy to produce and make money they just couldn't see it happening with this film they also felt it cost too much with Arnie's huge salary taking up a decent amount of the budget also, Scott and Schwarzenegger weren't exactly coming off their best work in Batman and Robin and White Squall. The movie also, once again, lacked any merchandise, merchandise potential. And that seems with Warner Brothers a real huge thing. You need to be able to have that. But I don't see how you can merchandise a film. There's nothing... It's not yeah, like it's I a really superhero don't. character or anything. Or yeah, well, there's any characters in there that you could actually merchandise. No. Well, this thing, from doing research, a lot of research about these films, Warner Brothers seem to be on the merchandise and they don't seem to think things very clearly yeah. but uh, so these are the many reasons that Ridley Scott's Iron Legend never transpired the only real good thing that came out of this failed production was that it eventually led to the 2007 film with it taking a lot of inspiration from the Scott version but it's it's, it's sad because like you know Ridley he's, he's a guy you can just let him do his thing you don't get involved with his film he has some he has a he has a unique ability to be able to think of a story in his head and how he wants his set to look and because he, he got he brought a guy in to to draw 
what was in his mind and he was describing it to him. And the guy was quoted saying this is like one of the most beautiful sets designs ever. And they, once again, Warner Brothers, they, they kept on dipping their fingers in, you know, and, and it, like I said, it, it was almost like, it sounds stupid, but it was almost like Ridley was too ambitious with it. Like yeah. Warner Brothers wanted a quick, easy film that was going to make money. Yeah. And they, they asked him to cut a few corners, but Ridley was like, no, I'm not going to um, tarnish my reputation by cutting corners, making it easier. So, Yeah, the thing is with, with Ridley Scott, is as we, we found out last week, is, you know, he can make a great film and yeah. then he'll have a couple of duds. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he can't really... I mean, I would have loved to have seen, it seen I think it this film, been... but, you know, you take that risk that it might not be that, yeah. that great. And that's the thing with Ridley. If you give him all the creative power... He can either make something brilliant or something too too much, almost like yeah. Prometheus yeah. Yeah. or something like that, you know. So, but yeah, it was I would have loved. It was probably on my on my top films that I would have loved to see yeah. happen. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger as Robert Neville, but you know, the two thousand seven one's good though, <laughs> um, at least. So. I was actually reading a bit about that, and, yeah. s- and somebody made a dark joke about it, saying mm. that if Arnie was in that role, he wouldn't have any trouble snapping his dog's neck. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's gonna get a few yeah. hate, hate comments now. <laughs> right, so your next film. All right, yeah. Um, this is probably one of the most famous um, development hell films, Superman Lives. Mm. So, to actually talk about that, we need to go back to Superman three. So, Superman one and two, they were global blockbusters produced by father and son production team Alexander and Elia Salkind. Superman 3, which co-starred Richard Pariah, was a disappointment. Um, it was made with a slash budget. It grossed less than its predecessors. It received mixed reviews from critics and audiences. So after Superman 3, um, they had a go at, at uh, spin-off Supergirl in 1984, which Reeve actually refused to appear in. So the Salkins decided, um, and it was absolute box office bomb again, it didn't make back what it cost. So the Selkins decided that the Superman movies, they'd run their course, and so they sold the rights to Canon Films. Um, and we get Superman for the Quest for Peace. Um, it was an absolute disaster. Um, the problem was they, they'd got lots of films on the production and they attempted to make Superman 4 for even less money than Superman 3. And they cut costs and everything from sets to the visual effects. Um... Superman 4 was actually based on a story idea pitched by Christopher Reeve, actually, about oh wow yeah about mm. you know nuclear war and and the um, the environment etc. Yeah. Um, but it, it was an embarrassment to everyone involved, and it grossed a paltry thirty six million dollars worldwide. Oh wow yeah so yeah worldwide is not good <laughs> no. Um, Canon Films did intend to make Superman five. Um, it was unlikely Reeve would actually agree to appear in it because of the poor showing for Superman 4, but they did plan to make one with him as the Man of Steel. Mm. Now, what they planned to do was to cobble together 45 minutes of unused footage from Superman 4, along with new God, When a film does that, yeah. obviously yeah, they, they yeah, know they have no ambition and no money um, whatsoever. However, nothing came of it, and Cannon folded in the early 1990s. They went bust. Uh, so when they went bankrupt, the, the movie rights to Superman reverted back to the Salkins, but they created a Superboy TV series instead of a movie, 
So still, in 1991, screenwriter Carrie Bates pitched an idea for Superman 5 to Alexander and Salkind, which would star Christopher Reeve once more. Bates' plan was to ignore Superman 3, 4 and Supergirl and set it directly after Superman 2. But at this point in the early 90s, the Salkins were producing Christopher Columbus' Discovery, which ran massively over budget, and it ultimately lost the father and son producing team $40 million. So the Salkins quit the movie business afterward, and the Superman movie rights reverted back to Warner Brothers. From December 1992 to October 1993, DC Comics and Superman saw a major revival in mainstream interest with their crossover story event, The Death of Superman. So Warner Brothers hoped that this resurgence in Superman interest could be spun into a new movie. So they purchased the film rights and hired John Peters, one of the producers behind Batman, to help bring it to life as Superman Reborn. Now, John Peters was a bit of an eccentric character. Mm. Jonathan Lemkin, a writer with credits on TV shows like 21 Jump Street and Hill Street Blues, was hired to write the screenplay. Warner Brothers didn't like it, so they then hired Gregory Poirier for rewrites, and Poirier's script lay in pre-production limbo until Kevin Smith came to the studio. The story of the make the failed making of Superman Lives is now so infamous that an entirely crowdfunded documentary was made about it, The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened. So Kevin Smith, he's fresh off the success of Clark's and Mall Rats, was offered a chance to pitch to Warner Brothers. After being offered a variety of projects to rewrite, he expressed an interest in what was Gregory Poirier's script for Superman Reborn. He found it to be so bad and disrespectful of the Superman mythos that this fanboy fury got him a chance at writing his own Superman movie. And that eventually led to a meeting with John Peters. And like I say, Peters was a bit eccentric. Mm. He had three demands. Superman wasn't to fly. He wasn't to wear the iconic suit. And he had to fight a giant spider at the conclusion of the film. That is ridiculous, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> and being Warner Brothers, right? He also wanted to include a robot dog sidekick for merchandising. Oh, yeah, Warner Brothers are the worst, aren't they? <laughs> but Smith somehow managed to complete a script within these constraints that Warner Brothers was happy enough with to send it out to directors, including Robert Rodriguez. And it was actually Smith suggested Tim Burton, mm. who made Batman for Warner Brothers. And so when Burton got involved, Smith was kicked out because essentially... Burton wanted to rewrite, he wanted to put his own stamp on the film. Yeah. Um, he signed on for a $5 million pay-or-play contract, meaning that he got the money regardless of whether the film got made or not. And he cast Superman fan Nicolas Cage in the lead role. Um, unfortunately, Christopher Reeve had an equestrian accident in 1995, which left him paralysed, so he couldn't come back and, mm. and do it. But I think he actually acted as a consultant on, oh, yeah. on one of the films. And the cast was potentially to include Kevin Spacey's Lex Luthor, which was a role he would eventually play in Superman Returns, Chris Rock as Jimmy Olsen, and Christopher Walken as Brainiac. It's interesting yeah. cast, yeah. So um, Burton brought on a screenwriter called Wesley Strick, um, who he'd worked on uh, with on uh, he'd worked with on Batman Returns to to rewrite the script. Unfortunately, the estimated budget climbed to $119 million. So Warner Brothers hired Dan Gilroy to do another script rewrite to help bring the cost down to a more reasonable $100 million. And again, the studio was hesitant about getting the film into production because of the costly flops 
like The Postman and the cancellation of the Lois and Clark TV series. Um, eventually, Burton got frustrated, so he left the project to direct Sleepy Hollow, and Warner Brothers shopped the Gilroy rewrite script around to other directors like Michael Bay and Brett Ratner. After yet another script rewrite, Cage eventually left the project in 2000, and he was left to go into turnaround. Um, if you actually manage to see the documentary, there's some um, there's actually some uh, test footage of uh, Nick Cage in the Superman suit, isn't he? Yeah. And <clears throat> Tim Burton apparently had, had planned to give Superman a much darker, like like he did, he'd done with Batman, mm. a much darker edge, make him a little bit more uh, soulful and and moody, um, similar to to Batman. Yeah. So. After after Burton and um, Cage left, it went through a number of rewrites, producers and directors, until finally uh, Brian Singer got involved. Um, apparently, J.J. Abrams had written a script for Batman v Superman, mm. and there was another script, uh, I think it was Batman Flyby, and Warner Brothers decided that they didn't want two films in production at the same time. So... Um, it kind of flipped in between Brett Ratner and McGee, who, who made Charlie's Angels. Uh, but eventually, like I say, um, Branson got involved and in, 2000, in 2004, and Superman Returns was released in 2006. And Singer got rid of most of the script, apart from setting the film directly after Superman 2 and ignoring Superman 3, 4 in the, the Supergirl series. So it took 19 years for Superman 5, because it is considered part of the original yeah. canon, yeah. to come to fruition. And there was a plan to make a Superman 6 with Brian Singer and Brandon Routh, but Warner Brothers were hesitant to do that because even though Superman Returns made money, mm. it didn't make as much money as they wanted. Because it made about 300 million, yeah. didn't and it? it? Which is, uh, I, thought, I thought it was yeah. plenty, you know. But again, they... Maybe it's the merchandising as well. Mm. I don't know, but they didn't. They weren't happy with how much it made, so they decided not to not to pursue that. Mm. And eventually, Brandon Routh's option expired, so uh, he wouldn't have appeared anyway. Mm. Um, and then, obviously, two thousand thirteen, Man of Steel was released, which was not a remake or a part of the canon. It was re- a reboot, and that was really just made to introduce the extended DC universe yeah. to go against Marvel's universe, yeah. essentially. And, and it's odd, because Man of Steel is actually quite a, a darker film, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, For all Superman, but... It, I, mean, I actually quite like Superman Returns. I, I thought it was a, a good film. I'm not going to get shot, <laughs> but Superman Returns, I think, is my favourite Superman yeah. film. I actually love that yeah. film. I've, I love it because it's darker as well, yeah. and it's crazy that this film led on to what yeah. would be... And I think I think space is a great Lex Lex Luthor. I mean, obviously yeah. he, he suffered some personal <laughs> yeah. you know, issues, and, <laughs> um, but I think he's slowly getting back into yeah. into film. And you can't deny he's, he's a world class actor, yeah. can you? So yeah, yeah. He definitely fit the role. But uh, and I thought Brandon Routh was, was I thought he was alright. Yeah, was he was really good. Yeah. yeah. So mental, but like like you said, this is very infamous for how. Much held this, yeah. this one. Through, yeah, so you know? it was surprising that there were six attempts to make a Superman film yeah. between um, Four and Returns, uh, and yeah, it, it got. To, I mean, 
they spent, they give Nicolas Cage got 20 million, mm. Tim Burton got 5 million for not making a film. And you think, well, you know, they're throwing money away. Isn't it? If they would have just bite the bullet, made the film, yeah. it's Superman. They would have made the money back yeah. anyway. But like I said, they're, they're, Warner Brothers really are a weird studio <laughs> when it comes out, aren't they? Yeah, so, definitely, yeah. It's odd because now most of mine, bar one, are all Superman films. Yeah. I don't know if, if if that's a running theme where they just, they're easy films to make and then they get too complicated and they just, shelve it you know but yeah my my next film is Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 4 and uh Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy is universally loved the third one not as much is the blueprint on how to do superhero films right but it was never intended to be a trilogy at all he intended to do at least one more film Spider-Man 3 hit theaters in 2007 and by 2008 Raimi was already publicly speaking about a fourth entry into the franchise both Sam Raby and Toby, Toby Maguire had already signed up when plans of a fifth soon started hitting rounds. At this point, Kirsten Dunst, who played MJ in the franchise, hadn't yet signed up to portray the character in this film. When, when Raimi was asked about the possibility of making a film without MJ, he said that it was possible, but he liked Kirsten Dunst, citing her as one of his favourite parts of the franchise. He also stated that he'd like, liked her to portray the character again, and he was planning on having a story with her in it. He also planned on having previous characters like Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin and James Franco's Harry Osborne return, using the style that was seen in the second film. Uh, even though they're dead, they were like brought back through like visions and stuff. So I always love that when dead characters come back to life. <laughs> Believe it or not, Spider-Man Two is probably the best of them all. Yeah. And it was it was this, but um. Apparently, the studio wanted the first Spider-Man films writer David Coep to return and write a script. To everyone's surprise, it was Zodiac's James Vanderbilt who brought on, who was brought on board, probably due to the success of the film. Also, he's believed to be the first writer to actually come up with the screenplay. Although playwright David Lindsay Abair and Seabiscuit's Gary Ross later came on board for rewrites. In autumn 2009, while Ross was in the middle of writing his draft, Raymond was planning to shoot the film in March 2010. An announced release date of 6th of May 2011 was chosen, and Sony seemed to have confidence in the future of Raimi's Spider-Man franchise. This is because Vanderbilt was tasked with plotting out storylines for both Spider-Man 5 and Spider-Man 6. Even after all of the setbacks and changes with production, Spider-Man 4 still seemed like, like it was going to happen. And I think it's, it's, it was going to be like um, Back to the Future 2 and 3, where they would have shot all three, because they were, they were planning on making up to 6, so they shot all three Off films back to back, right. which is quite an ask, you know. But a villain for the film was never fully announced, though, and it still is a hotly debated topic. Would it be the Lizard? Would it be the Vulture or even Mysterio? Sadly, even to this day, nobody knows who is going to be the villain. Now, you probably expect me to name all these reasons why this film never got made. You may be quite disappointed when I tell you that there was literally only one reason why this film never transpired. And it's because Raimi felt that like he wouldn't be able to make the release date. Yep, that's quite literally the reason why. Sony, who are infamous for pressing to get their productions moving, and Raimi just couldn't agree on a release date. He wanted more time, Sony wouldn't give it to him. Raimi also stated that it would have been po possible to make the release date Sony were pressing, but he would have had to cut corners. This just shows that he's a director who is proud of his work and that he's, he has the highest standards. With this film in the bin, Sony decided to scrap this prediction, uh, production and reboot the series instead. We've got two Vanderbilt Spider-Man movies directed by Mark Webb, and starring Andrew Garfield. These aren't very highly regarded once again. 
it's another what-if scenario. If only Sony could have given me a bit more time. Oh, well, at least we have those three original films, but, like, it's just so stupid. Like, a release date could put this back, you know? Well, it's, it's, it's amazing um, that they actually... How much money they spend on developing these films yeah. and then just never it's go the through ridiculous with it. ridiculous thing. Yeah. Like, just push the movie back, you know? Yeah. Listen to your director. There's mm-hmm. a reason why you brought him on. And, like, Sam Raimi was... The reason, I always, always thought it was quite weird because Sam Raimi was obviously the... Um, he directed the Evil Dead movies yeah. and I, was quite, I thought it was quite weird for him to go direct the Spider-Man movies. But it was well, cause cause he was, they were kind of low-budget indie yeah. sort of films, weren't they? And to go to a sort of almost like a, a franchise-style... Iconic character. Yeah. Like, but he was actually one of the... He was a huge Spider-Man fan and he yeah. came publicly came out and said, I know how to make a great Spider-Man movie, which mm. he does. And he's shown that and it's just... If they would have just given him a bit more time, and I think the fourth would have been absolutely amazing. And it's it's by them planning on having a fifth and a sixth, they knew that he was the right man for the job, and everyone did. Obviously, his previous work, but yeah, they just there was one reason, one glaring reason that Sony had the money. It wasn't a problem. It's just and merchandise wasn't a problem. Obviously, Spider Man's the most you know one of the most bought figures ever. Just they couldn't budge the release date, and he was like, "Right, I'm gone." And I think it's credit to him, like I said, that he wasn't willing to cut corners because he, he he wanted to. He has those high standards, and he's proud of his work. He didn't want to be known as the guy to just almost sell out, sort of. So yeah, he, he left on his own accord. So good on. And, and unfortunately, we got the two amazing Spider-Man films. So <laughs> yeah, like I said, I think I, I watched maybe. I think I watched Raimi's Spider-Man after that. Yeah, the, the Amazing Prime. Yeah, yeah, it's not good, is it? Okay, so my next one is Dark Skies. Mm. So, uh, fresh from the success of Closing Cows of the Third Kind in 1977, Columbia Pictures, as always, wanted the sequel. <laughs> Spielberg wasn't too keen, but didn't want uh, what happened with Jaws 2 uh, to happen with this, where Universal went ahead and made a sequel without his involvement. So he reluctantly agreed. Um the initial script was given a horror film treatment, initially titled Watch the Skies, which had also been the working title for Closing Cowers. And it's also the last line in the 1951 film, The Thing from Another World. But it was changed to Dark Skies because they realised somebody actually owned the, the words Watch the Skies. <laughs> which is, yeah. Ridiculous. So um, whilst researching Closing Cowers, he heard a story from a UFO researcher called J. Allen Hynek about an incident that happened in the 1950s called the Kelly Hopkinsville, Hopkinsville Encounter, where apparently Kentucky family claimed that they'd been terrorised by gremlin-like aliens. And it, they laid siege to their farmhouse and they claimed they had to fight them off over a four-hour period. Um, Spielberg stated that he would produce Watch the Skies but not direct it as he was under contract to direct his next film for Universal. Um, initially asked Lawrence Kasdan to write it, but he was too busy writing The Empire Strikes Back. So he turned to John Sayles, who had written Joe Dante's Roger Common produced Jaws spoof Piranha, which Spielberg had loved. Um, Spielberg suggested Tobe Hooper, best known for directing and co-writing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, direct the film, but I think he declined. Um, the film was dis- scheduled to begin shooting after Spielberg returned from filming Raiders of the Lost Ark. Spielberg chose makeup and special effects master Rick Baker, who at the time was also working on John Landis's An American Wheel in London to design and create the 
alien creatures. Rick Baker built a working prototype of the lead alien that cost $70,000. And in the mid-80s, Sales delivered his first, and in the end, only, draft of the screenplay, which featured five aliens. Originally, they'd been 11, but they'd um, cut it down to five. And each alien had been given a name and given their own personality and were going to look different. So one alien named Buddy, he was kind and he befriended the human family's autistic son. The script opened with a lead alien called Scar, named after the Comanche chief in the 1956 Western The Searchers, killing farm animals by touching them with a long bony finger which gave off an eerie light. And it ended up with Buddy, which is the good alien, being marooned on Earth. Although there were some differences over the new concept, Spielberg and Sales parted amicably and the film project continued on. So while Baker worked on The Alien, Spielberg was having second thoughts about Night Skies. His quote is saying, I might have taken leave of my senses. Throughout the production of Raiders, I was in between killing Nazis and blowing up flying wings and having Harrison Ford in all this high serialised adventure. I was sitting there in the middle of Tunisia, scratching my head and saying, I've got to get back to the tranquility or at least a spiritual spirituality <laughs> of close encounters so while on the set of radio spielberg read the night sky script to melissa matheson who was there to see her then boyfriend and future husband harrison ford and she was actually already she was also a screenwriter mm. um and she cried after after reading it because the idea of an alien creature who was benevolent tender and emotional and sweet and the idea of the creature striking up a relationship with a child who came from a broken home was very affecting so when Spielberg came back from filming, he e- eagerly closed the door of Night Skies and began planning the film Matheson had dubbed E.T. and Me. Rick Baker had spent $700,000 on unused Night Skies designs, models and animatronics had a huge fight with Spielberg, which led to Carlo Rambaldi, who had previously done alien creature designs for Close Encounters, doing the creature designs for E.T., Columbia weren't happy with the emergence of E.T. and didn't want to make a wimpy Walt Disney movie. So in February 1981, six months after Columbia's desire for a Close Encounters follow-up had been fulfilled by Close Encounters of the Third Kind, a special edition. So what, what Spielberg had done is release a special edition of the film, and that kind of satisfied Columbia as kind of like a sequel. Um, they put Night Skies slash E.T. into turnaround. Um, Spielberg went to Universal, who had obviously produced Jaws, and they bought Night Sky's project from Columbia for a million dollars. That That's the money that they'd used so far in developing the project. And Columbia would retain 5% of the film's profits. Now, Columbia were always like one step away from bankruptcy. Mm. And because Close Encounters had gone over budget and over schedule, they'd, it almost bankrupted the studio. Um, but Columbia later said that the year... That year, they made more money out of E.T. than they did out of any films that they'd made. <laughs> so, yeah, so this this Night Skies uh, sort of horror alien film eventually became E.T. Um, and because it was a very personal film for Spielberg, it was about, you know, a divorced, broken family, absent father, something that he'd experienced, he decided to, um, to direct it himself. And that's a common motif in a lot of his films is that kind of divorce, absent yeah. father as well. Um, inspired not only E.T., but also Poltergeist. 
which had a family terrorised by paranormal forces rather than aliens. Mm. Um, Spielberg produced it, and actually Tobe Hooper directed it. And also Gremlins, um, which had one innocent and kind member of a species of otherwise mean-spirited creatures attacking a town. And there's a lot of the motifs, if, you, if the original film, you know, the idea of the finger with the light on it. Yeah, yeah, and everything. I, I caught, I caught yeah. that. I was like, yeah, this sounds yeah, like so E.T. that made it into, into E.T. Mm. Um, and obviously Universal wanted an E.T. sequel. Yeah. <laughs> so Spielberg hired Melissa Matheson to write a script for a sequel film entitled E.T. 2 Nocturnal Fears. And the film's plot would have shown Elliot and his friends getting kidnapped by evil aliens and follow their attempts to contact E.T. for help. However, Spielberg finally decided to cancel the sequel's production because he felt it would cancel, it would um, damage the legacy of the original. Mm. Because it's a cute tale about a kid's bond with an alien and having sort of evil ETs around, it would damage that that uh, that film. Yeah. So yeah, um, I'm not sorry it didn't get made. I don't think. Yeah. Um, It's ET's a classic. Yeah. Just to be left alone, even at the time, just to be left alone. Um. So, yeah, I can't imagine, like, evil ETs running around. No. Um, it, I think it would have just been another sort of kishy horror film. Yeah. And so. and it's, it would definitely be one of those sequels where people watch the original and don't yeah. bother watching the sequel. Yeah. So that was very interesting. Yeah. And I love it when um, themes of a previous idea find their way yeah. into the actual real production. Yeah. So I love that Good. Right. Um, my next two films are actually films that actually did get made, but they went through absolute. This they they they've gone down in for me by how bad the production was and how much of a of a um, hellish sort of environment it was. And the first one is in, is the 2015 film Fantastic Four. And so the the Josh Trank directed 2015 blockbuster Fantastic Four is well known to be one of the most troublesome productions ever made. 20th Century Fox released the film. It was meant to be both a reboot and a brand new take on the characters. The Fantastic Four films we got up to this point were the campy and hokey films of the 90s and mid-noughties. The film was meant to be grounded, dark and and a gritty film, rarely seen in Marvel films. It was a much different but welcomed take on the characters. It seemed promising, right? The script had been written by Jeremy Slater and the team of Zach Stenz and Ashley Edward. Josh Trank was unhappy with the script, so he set out to write his own. He shot many fans of the four, including the producer in the studio, due to his vision being different than perceived. Executives at Fox were not happy with what they were seeing from the shoot, so they began dipping their fingers in and sending out people like X-Men writer Simon Kimberg to steady the ship, so to speak. Trank, meanwhile, allegedly went on a spree of bad behaviour, much of which he actually denies, and he was eventually sidelined while the entire third act of the film was reportedly reshot. The movie came out in early... August of 2015 to complete universal resentment. Both the critics and fans absolutely hated it, and it was a complete box office bomb. The film's failure actually caused Trank to lose his job at Lucasfilm as the director of the now-shelled Boba Fett film. Trank remains hell-bent on getting his work out to the public, that he was bullied by the 20th Century Fox, and it was their fault for the film's failure. He also stated that he'd been left that if he had been left alone to make the film, that it, had been, that it would stand up against any of the comic book movies of today. Many people actually believe that there is a Trank cut over the film, that this cut doesn't have any interference on 20th Century Fox at all. Fans have been protesting for the Trank's cut's release ever since the day the film came out. 
20th Century Fox deny that there is such a cut, but comments online from Trank's socials say otherwise. Now, I wish that 20th Century Fox would let him get on with his vision. After all, he's a very talented young director. This is even more evident due to the film biopic Capone starring Tom Hardy. This shows the directing prowess that he does hold. One can only hope that if there is a trank cut, 20th Century Fox will eventually release it. So, um, yeah, it was, it was it's very odd because obviously this is a, a more modern um, example of, of a production going through hell. And it was actually... Josh Trank, um, he knew this film wasn't going to be good when he got sidelined because it was just producers were getting involved, different writers were getting involved, and um, it, the once they sidelined him, they didn't even bring another director in, which is you know at least bring another director in to steady the ship, you know. But yeah. um, he went online, he went on Twitter. And he basically trashed his film, saying his own film was re- going to be really bad. Like uh, for the for the because um, he had quite a following. Because like I said, Josh Trank is actually a really good director, and he was only thirty one at the time, and he he already had a really good uh, filmography. Yeah. And he was just warning, basically warning people. Um, I think he nearly got sued for this as well. Obviously, definitely. Yeah. But he's yeah. like, um, basically warning people on his own social media about how bad this film was going to be. Yeah. And I think that caused. It made uh, the only reason why this film made money is because people wanted to see how bad this film was. If, if, so it's, also, it's kind of good marketing, yeah. even though he's trashing his own yeah. film. Yeah. If the director says it's going to be a bad yeah. film, yeah. Because how rare, how well, let's say let's say like you know, all publicity is good publicity, yeah, exactly. don't they? So, and this, this yeah. worked in in favour of Tony Century Fox, <laughs> but yeah, this was just one where nothing nothing seemed to to get right, you know. And once again, the company getting in the way of yeah. I don't get what's the point in hiring a director what's the point in, in hiring uh, you know a writer to go out and write the film a director direct the yeah. film if you're just going to dip your fingers in it's just it yeah. just well it's, I don't think anybody actually sets out to make a bad film do they they, no. they want to make the best film they can make and then things like that happen studio interference mm. and, and it's happened you know time and time again where the studio has had final cut yeah. And done it without the director knowing, and that's the that's the version that gets released, and then it bombs the box office. So yeah. they're all pointing fingers at the director <laughs> yeah. and saying, it's not, it's not fair, is it? "No, it's not. You can't win, can you?" But I mean, even even this, this film's been out for six years, and even to this day, there's pe- people online are are protesting for them to yeah. release the, the, the trank cut because they fully believe that he, where where it, he was, he's come out and said that he'd done. A full movie, Twentieth Century Fox say they didn't. So I don't, I don't know if Twentieth Century Fox don't want to release it due to uh, them knowing it's a much better film. Yeah. It's much, it flows better, you know, yeah. and it and it seems like it's a um co- like a coherent film, you know. Yeah. So it's 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 one that I can hope because it's it's not a bad film. I like I like the even with all the production hell, I like yeah. the darker take on it because I like I love a darker film, but it just you can tell it, it was the the brainchild of 20 different people you know it just wasn't it wasn't together and it just flows so bad and it's an absolute slog to get through so one can only hope like i said that 20th century fox do release this trend card so yeah right on to your last right. film um my last film is creature from the black lagoon now i'm a big fan of classic horror yeah universal horror films um and outside of, you know, this is probably one of my favourite monsters. Mm. Um, 
it was the original is 1954. It, it's directed by Jack Arnold. It's about a scientific research team in the Amazon. They discover fossilized remains of a missing link between land and sea animals. But then they also discover that the creature exists. Um, uh, it spawned two sequels, uh, Revenge of the Creature in 1955 and The Creature Walks Among Us in 1956, which actually features a young Clint Eastwood in it. As oh, wow. a, just yeah. as a little little small part as a lab technician. Yeah. Um, and because it was a successful film franchise, um, they hadn't forgotten about it. And they did that thing of like a lot of companies did in the 80s. They, they look back at their archive mm. of properties and they've seen which ones they can remake or work into a modern movie. So initially, uh, the project was spearheaded by director John Landis, who had made American Werewolf in London. He'd made the uh, thriller video for Michael Jackson. So he had some pedigree as a sort of horror director, but he didn't want to direct it. He was going to produce it. And he wanted to coax Jack Arnold, the original director, back to do it. And he was largely working in TV. Um, like I say, Landis would have served as producer. He'd actually coaxed um, legendary British screenwriter Nigel Neal um, to write the script. And he was probably most well-known for his Quatermass, sort of science fiction um stories for the BBC and also for Hammer Films as well. But the problem was that Landis was determined that he wanted to make the movie in 3D, which the actual original film was made in 3D. Um, but Universal didn't want to remake it because they felt it would distract attention away from Jaws 3D, which was released in 83, to absolutely scaling reviews and tepid box office. So um, after that, the brief interest in 3D which flared up in the early 80s, it, it soon ebbed away, which it did do in the 50s as well. So that might explain why Landis's produced Creature remake faded away too. Later in the 1980s, Joe Dante and Mike Fennell were attached to the project, but again, that fell apart, so it's one of, the, one of those where other people get attached to it and mm. nothing happens. So <clears throat> we're going to fast forward to 92. Um Chevy Chase was making a film, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, um, and he demanded that Warner Brothers hire John Carpenter to direct the uh, troubled comedy thriller. Uh, Carpenter had gone into the project knowing it had the potential to be a poison chalice because Ivan Reitman and Richard Donner had already walked away from it. Allegedly, I'm saying this allegedly, Chase mm. was known to be a demanding actor to work with. And the script had been already been through several rewrites. But both the studio and director seemed upbeat about the movie's chances. It was a big $40 million summer effects movie. And that budget was more than 10 times Carpenter's last film, which was a $3 million cult gem, They Live, which is a good film. I yeah. love that film. Larry yeah. Roddy Piper. <laughs> yeah. um, if you get to watch it, that's a brilliant film. Yeah. And it actually had a bankable star, you know, as, uh, as the main character. Yeah. Um, so actual, just taking that film, um, had actually made him Carpenter a big name again in Hollywood because he'd suffered a few issues 
Um, he suffered a few, um, like big trouble in Little China had bombed, hadn't it? Yeah. Um, even though it's now, seems a lot of his films, when they come out, they bomb, but then when people look back on them, cult classics, they, they become cult classic yeah. and everyone loves them. Yeah, everyone loves Big Trouble in <laughs> Little China, don't they? Yeah. But that allowed him then um, to have a meeting with Tom Pollock, who was the Universal's president at the, the time, to discuss new projects. And Pollock told him to look through our library of pictures and see if there's anything you want to make. So he chose... Creature from the Black Lagoon. I know we had a little bit of a segue there, but we, we returned back to the main <laughs> thing. Um, so obviously Cap Carpenter had pedigree, had history with Universal. He'd successfully remade The Thing from Another World into the 82 The Thing. It wasn't a success on release, but it became a cult classic. Mm. It found its audience on cable and, you know, and now it's, it's considered a, a absolutely... Amazing film, isn't it? Yeah, the, probably the best, one of the best horror films yeah. ever made, How to Do It. So he asked his long-time um, collaborator, screenwriter Bill Phillips, uh, to, uh, to, to write some uh, different drafts of the project after Carpenter felt Nigel Neal's script from a decade earlier wasn't going to work. Now, Carpenter had worked with Nigel Neal before on Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, what happened is when the creature from the lagoon, Landis's version, fell through, Neil stayed on in the, in the US and actually wrote the script for Halloween 3. And even though um, Carpenter didn't direct it, he produced it. And the problem was that when Carpenter had asked some, for some change, you know, script changes, Neil had become you know, angry at that. And so years later, Carpenter would describe him as irascible and mean, uh, which is probably why he wasn't in any hurry to work with him again. So uh, Rick Baker did some creature design work. Um, they wanted to get away from the sort of man in a rubber suit, but still retain the creature's overall look. Because mm. that's the thing about sort of when you remake stuff is it always helps if the person remaking it is a fan of the original. Yeah, and 100%. actually you know loves that because then there's that connection then. Mm. And all that they don't want to damage the original's legacy, so he wanted to retain as much of the original creature as possible, but tried to get away from that, you know, that man in a rubber suit kind of look. Um, the problem was that memoirs of an invisible man was a commercial failure. It lost twenty six million dollars, so Universal hesitated on giving it the green light. Um, and the delay just caused Carbon to leave the project. So that's really... And to be honest, of all of the films that we talked about, yeah. this is the one that I would have loved to have seen. i tell you what, you showed me the pictures of what yeah. the creature was going to look like. It looked, it looked quite similar to the original, yeah. but it, it just had that... Obviously, it was modernised, and it just looked terrifying, yeah. didn't it? But I just think he would have done such a good job yeah. like he'd done with the thing. Uh, but well, he's a master horror, isn't yeah. he? And he would have... He would have I mean, sure. since then, you, they've tried to kickstart the project with other directors, including Peter Jackson, Stephen Summers, Brett Ratner, Breck Eisner, and Robert Rodriguez, but it's just never come to fruition. No. Um, and the legacy that is actually Guillermo del Toro will tell you that The Shape of Water is inspired by Creature from the Lobart Lagoon, because mm. the creature in that does look very similar to the yeah. Gilman. Oh. But like I say, this, this, I'm not a big fan of remakes or... <laughs> reworking of it, but this is one that I would have I would have actually welcomed. Yeah. Um and I would have loved to have seen it. <laughs> so that's me finished. Okay. All right. 
Um, my last film is once again another film that was actually made, but is even more infamous for the production hell and um, Justice League. So when Warner was Warner Brothers again, <laughs> when Warner Brothers announced Justice League, I can't put into words the anticipation what this, that this film booed. Um, the most iconic superheroes of all time finally onto the big screen together. But once again, it followed the DC trope of being a huge cinematic disaster on the big screen. The behind-the-scenes drama with this film has to be the most infamous of all time. It's almost legendary how badly run the production of this film was. Released on November 17, 2017, the film grossed around $650 million worldwide, which is measly for, for a superhero film at the time, compared to, for example, Avengers Endgame, which is the highest grossing film of all time, with a worldwide gross of $2.7 billion. So when you put it into perspective, yeah. you know, um, this just shows the difference in quality between the DC Extended Universe and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It actually had a worse debut than Batman v Superman, and it grossed $200 million less overall than, than the standalone Wonder Woman film. One of the many reasons for the shoddy quality of the film is because of the fact that it has, due to tragic reasons, two different directors. Zack Snyder was brought on to direct the first film in the DCEU, Man of Steel. After it being a decent success, he again directed the DCEU's second film, Batman v Superman. Halfway through the production, Snyder had to withdraw due to his daughter's tragic suicide. Warner Brothers are putting so much time and money into the film that instead of scrapping or starting over the project, they just decided to bring in Avengers Assemble director Joss, Joss Whedon. This is widely believed to be because they wanted to lighten the tone set by the Wonder Woman film. Also that Whedon was the director behind the much-loved and successful Avengers Assemble and its sequel Avengers Age of Ultron. There's one glaring problem with this, though. Zack Snyder is a very dark and gritty director. You can see this in his films like 300 and Man of Steel. Whereas Joss Whedon is a very light-toned comedic director, perfect for Marvel, not necessarily for DC. And he was, he was the um, writer of uh, Toy Story as well, so you can see his... Well, he, he made Buffer the Vampire yeah. as well, so that's yep. kind of where, it, that, where it's aimed at. His Star Wars, yes. Was Warner Brothers wouldn't budge on the release date, so Whedon had next to no time to finish the film while implementing his style. This is the reason why this film is quite literally like two different films. The first half is the grounded dark greetiness you expect from Snyder and the DCEU, whereas the, the second film, half of the film, is quite literally the film trying to be a Marvel film. He even stoops to the lows of Batman, cracking one-liners and trying to be the funny guy. Yes, Batman, the most dark protagonist of the film. It just isn't right. The film was a car crash from the beginning once again. A lot of this is due to the, the pressure from Warner Brothers. Snyder and Whedon just couldn't win. To make matters worse... Junkie XL was hired to make the, the soundtrack to this film because um, he obviously done the the original uh, Batman v Superman. It was it was brilliant and dark. It went really well with Snyder's half. Whedon's not so much. Whedon hired Danny Elfman to come on board and rework Junkie XL's original score and like lighten the tone a bit. But like both directors, he didn't have any time to work with. So what we got in the end was quite literally one of the worst film scores ever made. And I've heard it. It's, it's terrible. Uh, Warner Brothers gave uh, time off to Henry Cavill as he was filming Mission Impossible at the time. Uh, there was one big problem with this though. He had a he had a this like big chevron moustache in Mission Impossible, and of course Superman doesn't have any facial hair. He wasn't allowed to shave it off, so Warner Brothers spent a huge amount of money. Um, I think the most money not CGI removal of a moustache. Yeah, yeah <laughs> money to CGI his moustache <laughs> off his face and. Uh, now, in doing this, they had to completely rebuild his face due, like, um, 
using the CGI and it looked absolutely horrible and it completely takes you away from the film. It's like that. Um, with Mouth's the hardest in CGI because yeah. you got that un- uncanny yeah. uh, uncanny valley. Yeah, yeah, and um, it almost makes a mockery of Superman himself. It looks ridiculous. I've not heard of a fake mustache. Yeah, true. That <laughs> <laughs> mean they could have saved themselves millions. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Um, Studio by Mission Impossible. They were they were actually going to sue them if they, they? made so them. Actually shaved yeah, mustache. because of the he came back after rewrites. They didn't have any 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 um control over what yeah. he did now. Um now, after years of Warner but uh, also with the rewrites, um Ben Affleck, he was big and bulky for um you can tell which was the rewrites. Batman v Superman. For for parts yeah. of Justice League, yeah. parts that were filmed before. But then right. obviously rewrites, um this seems where he looks really quite um big as in like uh, he's carrying a bit of weight right. on him. Right. And he yeah. looks really like um, tired and down and depressed, yeah. and you can tell they're just the rewrites of it. Um, now, after years of Warner Brothers denying it to be true, they recently re- recently released a Snyder cut of this film, a four bloated, a four hour bloated version of the first half, and even that was a letdown. And I just think maybe the DCEU is cursed. You know, it's just they've had what quite a few films, and and the only real one that's 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 got anywhere near Marvel levels is uh, Wonder Woman. Yeah. Apart from that, they, they've all been box office bombs. Well, like I said, I think it's, it's when, you, when you're going to make films like that, particularly with comic book characters, um, where there is that love from the fans for those, I yeah. think you have to hire somebody who understands the material yeah. and is a fan themselves and who will treat it with respect. Um, and we, we've said, I mean, we keep going on back to Star Wars, but we've said about the... The um, the latest three films there doesn't seem to be that connection no. with the audience, and it's almost like like they just shit on the audience because yeah. they don't give a, they don't care about the the story they don't care about the characters, and they just it sh- shows a lack of respect I think and yeah. I, I think that's where a lot of films fail. Well, really. this thing goes to show um, Zack Snyder is a big fan of DC of DC and his is. Films is his standalone films are quite well received, you know. Yeah. Um, he got he got the, the the job of Man of Steel from um, his 2009 film Watchmen, and um, that was another uh, DC film. And uh, then they brought in Josh Sweden, who was of course um, at Disney. You know, like I said, he he, he done Toy Story. Uh, he was in he was in Marvel, and he, he just. You can't have the same no. passion for that no. when you've worked in Marvel, you know. So it just goes to show that, yeah, you should be, you should actually be casting a director who fully cares about the project because yeah. they're going to put one hundred and ten percent into it, you know. So yeah. So there we go. That concludes our uh, episode on development hell. Hope you've enjoyed it. It's been a long one, hasn't it? Yeah, it is. No, it's not. It's not just over an hour. Um, I'd just like to thank you for joining us. Um, I hope you will tune in next week. Um, you can follow us for other content. We're on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Uh, we also have a website, filmgeezers.com. And uh, tomorrow we'll be um, also releasing another like mini podcast, but it's a film review on Jaws. So stay tuned for that. And like I said, it's going to be about 20 minutes and we're just going to, uh, review the blockbuster jaws so yeah um yeah so um thank you for joining thank hope you. you join us again tomorrow um 
Bye. Thank you. Bye.